sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be taking a closer look at U.S. President Joe Biden's recent meeting with uh, the leadership of Saudi Arabia. Also going to be talking about recent developments happening inside Sri Lanka as a political crisis continues to grip that country. Also going to be talking about a report that uh, reportedly seeks to address uh, accusations of uh, anti-Semitism within the U.K. Labor Party. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, there's a lot of conversation these days about decolonization, the need to decolonize our thinking, our actions, our societies. We like to think this is a new concept we smart organizers and movement people came up with. But those of us who are honest will admit that we've been guided by one of the greatest philosophical and political thinkers on the subject of decolonization and the need for it, Franz Fanon. Born on the island of Martinique under French colonial rule on July 20th, 1925, Franz Omar Fanon was one of the most important writers in Black Atlantic theory in an age of anti-colonial liberation struggle. Fanon engaged the fundamental issues of his day, which we still engage today, but somehow think we are the vanguards in realizing revolutionary theory focusing on language, affect, sexuality, gender, race and racism, religion, social formation, time, and so many other concepts. His impact was immediately uh, felt upon arrival in Algeria, where in 1953, he was appointed to a position in psychiatry at Bilda Jeanville Hospital. His participation in the Algerian revolutionary struggle shifted his thinking from theorizations of blackness to a wider, more ambitious theory of colonialism, anti-colonial struggle, and visions for a post-colonial culture and society. Fanon published in academic journals and revolutionary newspapers, translating his radical vision of anti-colonial struggle and decolonization for a wide variety of audiences and geographies, whether as a young academic in Paris, a member of the Algerian National Liberation Front or the FLN, as an ambassador to Ghana for the Algerian provincial government, or as a revolutionary participant at conferences across Africa. In his lifetime, he published two key original works, Black Skin, White Masks, or or Pou Droit Masques Blancs in French in 1952, and The Wretched of the Earth, Les Damnes de la Terre in 1961. Collections of essays, uh, A Dying Colonialism, L'Anva de la Revolution Algerienne in 1959, and Toward the African Revolution, or Pour la Revolution Africaine, posthumously published in 1964, they round out all the works of a radical thinker in motion, constantly moving from examinations of anti-colonial struggle in the Caribbean to Europe to North Africa to Sub-Saharan Africa. But for many of us, our grounding in decolonial theory began with our reading of Fanon's Black Skin, White Masks, his first major work published in 1952. 
In it, he examined the foundations of anti-Black racism in the deepest recesses of consciousness and the social world. And the book is his major work on Blackness. Even as his focus shifts in the years following the publication of Black Skin, White Masks, moving away from Blackness as a problem, perhaps the only problem of the modern world, and toward examination of a wider theory of the oppressed colonialism and revolutionary resistance to the reach of coloniality as a system. But that shift is unthinkable, and actually it's impossible without Fanon's early meditations on anti-Black racism and how it forms and then deforms the subjectivity of white and Black people, both in its crucial for understanding the multiple levels of colonial subjugation and how it must be overcome. In Black Skin, White Masks, Fanon draws together the existential experience of racialized subjectivity and the calculative logic, the very deceptive and devious and completely calculated logic of colonial rule. Fanon expresses in the book the idea that colonialism is a total project, not just an idea. It's a project that does not leave any part of the human person and its reality untouched. And to explain, he examines the seemingly simple aspect of human existence, language, through the lens of colonialism and surmises that to speak a language is to participate in a world, to adopt a civilization. And if this is true, then the language of the colonized, a language imposed by centuries of colonial domination and dedicated to the elimination or abjection of other expressive forms of indigenous civil civilization, literally the forced adoption of another civilization, reflects the world of the colonizer and the way they understand it. So to speak as the colonized is therefore, Fanon concludes, to participate in one's own oppression and to reflect the very structures of alienation in everything from vocabulary to syntax to intonation. This is just one example of the ways that Fanon's work influences modern continued struggle to dismantle the totality of the colonial project in this country and around the world. Certainly, the 1961 publication of The Wretched of the Earth reflects Fanon's expanded examination of anti-colonial struggle and revolutionary action as he shifts his focus away from only anti-Blackness and toward a broader sense of the effects of colonialism on the psyche, cultural formation, and political organization of all colonized, oppressed people throughout the world. Our modern and continued struggle against the settler colonial project of the United States and the continued struggles of colonized and oppressed peoples around the world reflects the continued influence that the works and dialectical and ideological clarity that Franz Fanon gave us in the few works he produced. So as we are optimistic in the emergence of this post-colonial multipolar world that is in the midst of its birth pains, we talk about this on the show almost every day, I want us to not forget one of the great fathers of this struggle, Franz Fanon, who planted the seed in a revolution to dismantle the colonial project and its totality in all of us. 
Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by John Kiriakou, the co-host of Political Misfits, which you can hear from 12 to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on Radio Sputnik. John, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And John, of course, U.S. President Joseph Biden recently took a trip to the Middle East. And one of the main uh, meetings or events on this trip was uh, 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 him going to Saudi Arabia, where he met uh, with the royal leadership there, uh, King Salman and folks like this. He also met with the leaders of the Gulf Cooperation Council, which includes uh, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, Oman and the United Arab Emirates, along with Egypt, Jordan and Iraq, reportedly to discuss security issues. Now, in the lead up to Biden's trip, to the Middle East uh, when it was known that he was going to Saudi Arabia. I mean, you know, questions were raised about uh, 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 the Saudi government's role in the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, uh, uh, things like this. Of course, uh, people wondering about oil and things like this. And, you know, uh, Biden has claimed that uh, he did raise the Khashoggi murder uh, with Salman. Uh, In the past, he's also, um, you know, uh, basically sworn to make, uh, you know, the Saudi government government, you know, a pariah because of this and things like this. But we see, you know, pictures of Biden, you know, fist bumping uh, uh, Salman and all these sorts of things. And you recently published a piece about this with Sheer Post entitled Biden, the warmonger gets played by the Saudis. And so I'm wondering what you really make of this uh, Saudi Arabia uh, meeting with uh, Biden, John, and why do you think Biden got played? I think this was a very big risk that Joe Biden took for a couple of reasons. First of all, everybody knew that the reason for this trip, at least for the Saudi Arabia part of this trip, well, there were two reasons, but the primary reason was to ask for oil, to ask the Saudis to raise their oil production, and uh, and then by extension to help bring down the price of, of gas here in the United States. But we also know, or knew at the time, that uh, French President Emmanuel Macron had had a conversation with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, in which Mohammed bin Salman told him that the Saudis were already operating at peak production and that they simply couldn't produce any more oil. So very big risk going over there to ask for additional oil when you know that they don't have it, or at least they're claiming that they don't have it. The other reason for this trip was to try to rally the six member states of the Gulf Cooperation Council, plus um, Egypt, Iraq, and Jordan to to try to at least lay the groundwork for for some kind of a new regional defense um, organization that would um, oppose Iran. This is something that the Israelis have been pushing us to do for many years. And Biden, to tell you the truth, is kowtowing to the Israelis on this. The Iranians have very close relations with the Iraqis. They have relatively close relations with the Qataris and with the Omanis. So what what would be in it for, for those countries 
to to ally themselves with Israel. It, it would be provocative. So I, I think that the whole idea of this trip was a mistake, at least the leg that took him to Saudi Arabia. He, he ended up going home with nothing to show for his efforts except this this awful video of himself fist bumping Mohammed bin Salman. I think he was humiliated by it. And then to make it even worse, the literally the first question that, that anybody in the media asked the president when he came out of that meeting was, did you raise the, the uh, assassination of Jamal Khashoggi? And he said that he did and that he was very direct with the crown prince. And he said this was unacceptable and it was wrong and that the crown prince said that he didn't have anything specifically to do with it, but the people who did it were punished, et cetera, et cetera. And then the minister of state for uh, foreign affairs, former ambassador to the United States, uh, Adel Joubert said that the president never raised Jamal Khashoggi. So we don't even really know what happened in that meeting. Well, it seems like what we do know, and and as your article points out, is that Biden got played by the Saudis. And I think it's important, John, to, to point out all of the ways that the Saudi government and the governments in this region that he tried to marshal to, uh, uh, you know, come up with this deal to appease Israel, all of the ways that they just didn't have to bother and literally didn't do to do anything Biden wanted because Biden really hasn't done anything different from what Trump did. That's right. So, so there would he went into this meeting with nothing, no leverage. He went into this meeting with these people, the the uh, with with uh, Mohammed bin Salman, with the leaders of the Gulf states. He did not go into this meeting saying, "Listen, I have uh, reversed everything that Trump did that you all love so much, and if you want me to budge." even half an inch on any of those yeah. things or just one of those things, you're going to have to give me X, Y, and Z. But but nothing. nothing. Absolutely yeah. nothing. And I, I mean, his ratings are already in the tank, John. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you think this is going to do to what's left of his uh, standing as in, in, in the face of the uh, uh, American people in regard to any U.S. foreign policy. Now. Oh, and Jackie, this this was supposed to be the foreign policy president. Right. This is a this is a guy who not only was the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, but he was the vice president of the United States for eight years because of his foreign policy expertise. Remember, people were worried about Barack Obama being so young and so inexperienced. He had only been four years in the Senate and he didn't have a lot of foreign policy experience. And so the idea was while Obama was going to focus on the economy and pulling us out of the Great Recession, we could rest assured that Joe Biden had foreign policy in hand. And that's not the way it's worked out, is it? So not only is Joe Biden polling between 36 and 39 percent, but uh, but 50 percent of his own party don't want him to run for reelection. And he doesn't even have any foreign policy victories to point to. To say, well, listen, I know the economy is rough, the global economy is rough, but at least we have these foreign policy victories. There are none. There's nothing to point to. 
Yeah, and I mean, not only are there not any foreign policy victories, there don't seem to be a ton of victories in general Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the Biden administration that, uh, you know, would encourage folks to to actually want to vote for him again, which I think I agree is why um, we're we're starting to see like publicly now uh, uh, elements of the Democrats sort of uh, uh, voicing a kind of uh, hesitation around Joe Biden running in 2024. And, you know, in. An important point that Jackie raised, John, is the fact that Biden's uh, foreign policy is not all that fundamentally different from that of Donald Donald Trump. Trump. Right. But we were told that Joe Biden was one that was going to save us from Donald Trump. whose presidency was, you know, marked by his, you know, belligerence and unpredictability and uh, immaturity and and honestly just a complete lack of real statesmanship. Right. And so. Biden sold himself to us as someone who was going to be the remedy to that, a a corrective to uh, uh, the Trump years. But certainly in the case of foreign policy, we've not really seen that. And, you know, to to speak just generally about it, I mean, I feel like we're reaching a point where the Biden presidency as of now really just feels like like a dud on, on a number of levels. And it's hard not to see it as part and parcel of why, uh, 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 the 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 fabric, the social, political, and economic fabric of the United States is is fraying so much in this moment. I have to agree with every one of those points that you just made. And let's look at this one point at a time, too. There was a poll released by U.S. News and World Report uh, today that says that uh, for the first time since they started taking polls on these issues, um, a majority of Americans trusts the Republican Party over the Democrats on education. Can you imagine that on education? This is supposed to be the education president. Uh, let's look at the uh, at the Palestine leg of this uh, this trip that Biden took last week. Um, he gave a speech in Bethlehem in which he pledged one hundred million dollars in aid to Palestinian hospitals. That's great, but it doesn't do anything to to help ensure the freedom of Palestinians. Why did he not reopen the Palestinian um, intersection here in Washington? It was closed by Donald Trump. It had been open for many years. And this was the conduit between the Palestinian Authority and the State Department. Well, they're just out of business. We don't have any direct uh, daily contact in Washington anymore with the Palestinians. It wouldn't have cost us anything to reopen that office. So why didn't he do it? Another thing is Donald Trump's decision to unilaterally move the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Well, Donald, uh, uh, Joe Biden could have unilaterally moved it back to Tel Aviv and didn't. So why not? Either you're going to take a leadership position on these issues or you're not. And if your policy is to just extend the Trump policy, then be honest about it. And say, look, we're, we're just not going to do any of this stuff. We'll give you some money for your hospitals. You know, we'll, we'll talk to the United Nations about food aid or whatever. But we're just not going to do anything for you people. But he's not honest like that. And clearly he's not honest about anything that he's done uh, in regard to Trump's policies. But he, he was also not honest uh, about this trip. And there was something you was was brought to the attention of regarding 
the meetings that Biden attended with the Saudi uh, king and the crown prince that really reflect that in those meetings, Biden knew that he was meeting with someone who was really not all there, but he did it for the optics. And right. he knew that he was really going in there begging Mohammed bin Salman, who he had called, you know, accurately a murderer and a pariah to do something that bin Salman just admitted, you know what, I'm just not going to do it until OPEC tells me to. So so what was this thing that that Biden was made aware of that he had to <laughs> know that you were made aware of that Biden had to have seen when he was in this meeting? Right. Uh, King Salman is 86 years old and he's infirm. Um he also tends to be confused. And in the meetings with Biden, he had an iPad on his lap. We all noticed the iPad, right? And he would look down at it and then he would look back up. And I don't know, I, I just kind of assumed that's where his notes were. You know, Biden keeps his notes on a little card in his pocket. It's just it's old school. It's just the way he does it. What I hadn't noticed until an Al Jazeera journalist pointed it out to me was that Mohammed bin Salman also had an iPad on his lap. Now, he was not sitting next to his father and protocol would dictate that he that he should be sitting next to his father. But he wasn't. He was sitting at the end of the Saudi delegation in this in this big majlis room. So he had an iPad on his lap. And what he was doing is he was messaging his father, the king, with questions to ask Biden or answers to give Biden to his questions. So the king is not even equipped to answer questions or to ask questions. It's Mohammed bin Salman who's running this country day to day. So we can call him a murderer and we can call him a pariah and we can say that the Saudi uh, Saudi society has no redeeming qualities, which the president said a couple of months ago. But the, the bottom line is you have to eat crow if you're going to deal with these people. Yeah. And I mean, it's just funny because imagine saying all those things, knowing that you're basically going to have to go to them hat in hand. That's right. Because of some of these other broader issues dealing with the U.S., like, you know, the, the war in Ukraine and all these sorts of things. And it also makes me think about, you know, swinging back to um, him meeting with those th those other governments, th those other Gulf states and about how, as you noted, John, in trying to organize a front against Iran, he's fundamentally asking some of these governments to betray their own interests and relationships That's with right. Iran. That's right. And it's just and I have to wonder, why would he expect them to do that? And so I feel like we've seen this with the Biden administration, the U.S. government here fairly recently. If we look at this latest uh, slew of international meetings of NATO and the EU summit and the G7 and things like that, I, I, it feels like a, a similar sort of thing in terms of what the U.S. expects it's, you know, allies to do and these other European countries to do vis-a-vis -vis Russia that could very well be harmful to them as well. And I feel like it's all it all sort of paints a real picture about the, the state of decline that uh, the U.S. is in in a number of ways. And in, 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 in this context, um, 
on the international stage where it's used to, you know, basically just running roughshod over uh, uh, everyone, which, you know, it generally still is. But it, it also seems like we're at a point where uh, the U.S. government's, you know, slip is hanging when it comes to a lot of these things. And I just I, I can't imagine that that's going to help improve uh, the image of the U.S. on the world stage. Sean, I was trying to imagine what it must have been like in the meeting between Biden and the Iraqi prime minister. If I were the Iraqi prime minister, I would have said, haven't you done enough damage to my country? (laughs) And now you want me to fight the Iranians for you? I like the Iranians. I work with the Iranians. 60% of our population is Shia Muslim, which the Iranians are. Just leave us alone. That's what I would have expected to hear from the uh, from the Iraqi prime minister. Now, there are regional alliances that are just going to be maintained no matter what the situation is. The Egyptians hate the uh, Iranians. The Saudis and the Bahrainis hate the Iranians. Okay, knock yourselves out. If you want to have a little alliance there uh, amongst yourselves to hate the Iranians, that's fine. I don't care. But what the president was doing was asking these countries to do Israel's bidding. And that's different because you can create this alliance against the Iranians and it leaves the Palestinians out in the cold. There should be a quid pro quo. If you want us to put our own foreign policy aside so we can help you to improve your relations with the Saudis and the Iraqis at all, then you've got to do something too. You've got to reinvigorate, let's say, the two-state solution. You have to initiate or reinitiate direct talks with the Palestinians. Go back to Oslo or to wherever you think a neutral venue would be. But we can't just turn over our foreign policy to Israel and then do Israel's diplomatic bidding in the Gulf and not expect anything for the Palestinians. Definitely. And I mean... (laughs) I got to say, when you talk about Biden and uh, King Solomon, you know, if if Joe Biden has the better cognitive capacity in a meeting, then we're really in trouble. But we thank you so much, John, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about ongoing developments in the political turmoil inside Sri Lanka. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today from Sri Lanka by writer Indy Samara Jiva. Indy, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me again. Absolutely. And Indy, of course, uh, Sri Lanka has been rocked here recently by uh, uh, explosive protests. I mean, I don't think uh, describing them as massive is even really doing it justice in terms of the size of them uh, uh, centering around the uh, issue of a country's uh, economic crisis and things like this. And uh, things reached such a, a fever pitch that uh, uh, President Gotabaya Rajapaksa 
Al-Aqsa actually stepped down from the presidency and uh, has now been replaced by uh, multiple time former prime minister Ranil Rick Ramasinghe. And so to begin, I was hoping you could help us understand uh, uh, sort of how we got to this point, uh, particularly with the stepping down of the former president, uh, Rajak Paksa. And what do you think this new president may have in store for Sri Lanka in this uh, extremely difficult period? So, I mean, the conditions that led to this are actually, look, let me just explain it to you in the long term. Like Sri Lanka was colonized for 400 years. So they had us exporting cheap labor and natural resources and importing finished goods from Britain or whoever. Right. And then after independence, that relationship never actually really changed. And that led to a perpetual trade imbalance, which has collapsed now. So we're having a petrodollar crisis. So we can't, we don't have dollars to get fuel or food with the result that, you know, people can't move and they can't feed their children. And that understandably leads to protests. So these protests called for Gota to go home, who was the president at the time. And with great effort, they actually did get him to go home. But the thing in Sri Lanka since the colonial era is that these elite families have been just jockeying among each other and selling us out to whoever the colonizer is. And Rani Wickham Singh is just another one of those families. So the Rajapaksas have ruled Sri Lanka for about, I think it's 15% of our independence history, maybe a bit more. And Ranil's family has ruled for about 30, 34%. So we've kind of just gone from like one rogue to another. And so Ranil is actually so despised that he was voted out of his own parliamentary seat last election. He only got into parliament on a bonus seat, but in a plot that would put House of Cards to shame, he schemed his way from there to becoming Gota's prime minister and protecting Gota. And then when Gota had to flee to becoming president. And then he used the powers of presidency to bribe MPs. And he said, I'll give you a guy, give you guys a house because we, we burnt their houses. But he said, we'll give you guys a house if um, you vote for me. And then he won a presidential election, quote unquote, with 134 votes. It's a complete farce. The country's just descended into oligarchy. And Ranil is America and like India's guy. So he's his policy so far seems to be neoliberal austerity uh, plus militarization. And as we, you know, expected with this new president who really isn't representing anything new, the, his uh, uh, in his tenure, even before the election, um, as he was being acting president, he had actually introduced a fresh state of emergency through uh, official policy as acting president on July 18th. And that was ahead of the voting on July 20th. What did that state of emergency call for in regard to the ongoing protests in Colombo, and how has that uh, carried through now that the election is over and he is officially, even through, as you interestingly put it, in a, in a plot that puts House of Cards to shame, now that he is officially president? So, I mean, the emergency let them do what they were always doing. So as prime minister under the Rajapaksas, uh, Ranil and them, they arrested about 2000 protesters from all around the country. And then today he issued an arrest warrant for leader of the IUSF, which were the student protesters. Um, protesters outside of his house were beaten and tear gassed. 
and then he's all he's also called the protesters fascists and said that you know he's he'll and all of his photo ops and stuff has been so far with the military and that's the only constituency he has besides like foreign countries uh he has no like support from the people at all so he's just effectively just like a neoliberal dictator we've got now who's going to impose austerity with with the boot and the gun yeah, and you mentioned a moment ago that the new president is uh, sort of the choice of uh, New Delhi and, and Washington. I mean, why are those dynamics uh, important in terms of, you know, uh, uh, his orientation? Obviously, as you're pointing out, of a uh, certainly of a neoliberal character likely to use uh, a repression to sort of uh, enforce that. And, and so, you know, why, why is it important from the standpoint of ending the U.S. to have someone like this now be at the head of Sri Lanka? Look, um, I think what's happening in Sri Lanka, it's we talk about this as a Sri Lankan story, but it's not. It's a global economic story. As COVID should have taught us, we're all connected. Um, so there is like a global imperial shift happening now where the American empire, which who took over for the British, they're losing power. And Sri Lanka is just a fault line in that. So that's kind of what's happening there. And in their sort of attempt to, I don't know, to be honest, I don't think they should be meddling in Sri Lanka at all. They should both know better. Every place America has meddled, it has just gone badly for them and blown up in their face everywhere from like Afghanistan, where they like armed Al Qaeda before it became Al Qaeda and so on. Like, I don't know why they keep meddling, but they do. And India also, when they meddled in Sri Lanka's internal conflicts before, they helped fund the LTT. And then the LTT came back and killed Rajiv Gandhi, who was running for who was a former prime minister and running for prime minister of India at that time. So it's dangerous to meddle. I will say, like, Indian people, and India has given us a significant credit lines and so on. America doesn't really do anything for us, but they're both sort of anti-China. So this is kind of a somehow weird attempt to, like, get control, I don't know, some, like, Cold War crap, which just happens to be going on here. Um, it doesn't help us. It hurts us. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Have you heard from the, uh, obviously, the U.S. State Department on the event of the election of the new president? And from everything you just described with the U.S. government and Western governments very interested in remaining a part of and literally controlling uh, the Sri Lankan government, what do you expect uh, to change, if anything, uh, with a new president? So, Going back to the protesters, the protesters are still protesting. So this is not an acceptable solution for us. Like, Ranil is not acceptable. People wanted system change, and Ranil is part of the same corrupt system that we've had for the whole history of Sri Lanka. People wanted power to the people beyond parliament, and all we got was parliament selecting a hated president for us without even a vote among the people. So we've actually gotten the opposite of what people are asking for. So people are still protesting. And I don't actually know... How this turns out, I haven't, I mean, to be honest, I can't predict tomorrow. Yeah, and I think it's important to highlight both the fundamentally undemocratic nature of how this came about, Indy, and what's this, what this is going to mean for the conditions of the people of Sri Lanka, which is, of course, why these uh, protests broke out to begin with. And so if uh, Rhineal is a continuation of the same old uh, system, the same old politics, uh, the same old ways, um, well, then it seems that, you know, all of these issues, all this uh, suffering and poverty and things like this, this will really only continue. And I mean, as such, it, it completely makes sense that the protesters are still uh, uh, protesting. But what it also means is that the crisis that's facing uh, the rank and file person in Sri Lanka doesn't seem like it's going to end anytime real soon. 
Yeah, absolutely. So these guys are all like really fighting over deck to check deck chairs on the Titanic, right? So even Ranil's big thing is amending the Constitution. That doesn't make a difference to someone. The Constitution is just sort of like a appointment letter for our ruling class. It doesn't put food on the table for anyone here. And people are really struggling here. And it's not even just system change. We just want like food and fuel and the ability to send our children to school and like take people to the hospital and feed our children. And no one is addressing those concerns. They're just squabbling over power amongst themselves. Even with this quote unquote election, we know that there were huge amounts of bribes going back and forth for votes within this thing. So they have somehow money to like bribe each other, but they can't help the people who are really struggling. So it's making people lose faith in the whole liberal democratic system, which, which I have. So I think it's complete nonsense. I think the British left us this poison pill to keep us fighting amongst ourselves and not getting real economic independence and revolution. And in Sri Lanka's history, this has actually happened somewhat before. In the, in the 1950s, both Tamil protesters and socialist communist protesters did, did big protests, which really shook the government. But they didn't respond with real system change. And the scary thing is that over a generation that lived with this humiliation, lived with nothing happening, that generation, who I guess would be my daughter's age now, they turned to violence in about 20 years. Yeah, and that also makes me wonder when when you talk about these uh, uh, different protests and uh, the lack of real systemic change. Um, I'm curious when we talk about uh, this most recent period, from your perspective, who are some of the uh, sort of you know leading elements, uh, organized elements within the Sri Lanka protest movement at this point? I mean, generally speaking, I know that uh, uh, you know protests uh, certainly ones of that size you know tend to have a, a different uh, political ideologies, tactics, strategies, and, and things like that, even if they're all sort of motivated for similar reasons. But I'm just curious in terms of the social movements on the ground, you know, uh, who are some of the uh, uh, entities that, you know, seem to really be making this uh, push for uh, systemic change? So the protests, you know, contract and expand. But the people who are there consistently are generally like the socialists and the commies. And the so the IUSF is the vanguard. That's the Inter-University Students Federation. And they're connected with something called the Frontline Socialist Party. Um, and so they're, I say they're the vanguard because they've been protesting for decades, asking for like defending um, free higher education, uh, you know, public services and calling for, you know, the Democratic Socialist Republic of Sri Lanka. They've been defending that for decades and getting tear gas and water cannon for their troubles. And they know how to deal with tear gas and water cannons. Like when the cops put up barricades, the barricades are on wheels, right? So the IUSF guys know to, to grab the barricade and they know how to turn it essentially into a battering ramp. And with tear gas, they know how to, like, control tear gas. So these guys are on the vanguard, and, and, and they're still there. And that's why Ranil is trying to arrest their leader right now. But that said, that the protests don't have leaders like that. I would say those people are there. But if you go into, into the protest village, which is smaller now, but there's, like, 30 or 40 different groups who don't necessarily agree on anything. Um, it, it is a sort of anarchic village, and I mean that in the positive philosophical sense, as in democratically organized from the ground up. There isn't a particular leadership, but I will say the IUSF has taken more than their fair share of tear gas and uh, water cannon. Yeah, and last thing I'm wondering about, Indy, because... You noted a little earlier, I think correctly, about how what we're seeing in Sri Lanka sort of reflects broader global trends. And I'm wondering how you see this reflected in a regional sense. Like, what does the situation in Sri Lanka right now mean for uh, South Asia from your perspective? 
Well, I mean, look at Pakistan. And the U.S. openly meddled in Pakistan to depose Imran Khan. So they have this unelected government, which is leading them into, like, complete apps. They're tracking just, like, a few months behind us. Um, so, yeah, Pakistan's being meddled with. Um, that's I actually don't know too much. I, I, I follow Pakistan a bit. I don't know what too much of the region outside of there. But Sri Lanka's not the... I mean, I think Ghana is, like, there's a lot of people who are having problems with the fundamental inequality of the post-colonial economic situation, which is not uh, post-colonial at all. It's still colonial. Countries all over the world that didn't have socialist or communist revolutions, that didn't nationalize or control their natural resources and their labor in some way, that didn't seize the means of production, these countries have remained in a colonial relationship where they run perpetual trade imbalances and where we get perpetually underpriced on our labor and on our natural resources, and we keep having to buy this expensive stuff from abroad using the currency of our colonizers. And that imbalance is falling apart now. Because that empire is imploding, there are no like there even their vulture capitalists won't loan give us money to pay off our old loans, and so that system is collapsing globally. And to me, Sri Lanka is just the canary in the petrodollar mine. Yeah, definitely. I mean, those old contradictions of colonialism and imperialism still impacting people today. Well, we thank you so much, Indy, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about a recently released report concerning the Labour Party in the UK. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Asa Winstonley, an investigative journalist and associate editor with the Electronic Intifada. Asa, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you again, Sean. Absolutely. And uh, Asa, Labour Party leader Keir Starmer uh, 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 commissioned a report that has recently been released uh, concerning the issue of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. This is a 138-page report uh, following an independent inquiry by Martin Ford QC. And uh, basically, it sort of seeks to get to the root of a lot of the sort of conflicts and tensions that have been happening in UK labor over the last few years, uh, specifically over the leadership of uh, Jeremy Corbyn and the sort of uh, uh, anti-Semitic smear campaign that was aimed against him that I think had a very deleterious effect both on the UK Labour Party and perhaps politics in the UK in general. And this report says in part, quote, some anti-Corbyn elements of the party seized on anti-Semitism as a way to attack Jeremy Corbyn and his supporters saw it simply as an attack on the leader and his faction with both sides, thus weaponizing the issue and failing to recognize the serious of anti-Semitism. Now, it feels like there's a lot that's bound up in this, uh, uh, Asa. And mm. I, I guess to start, I'm just uh, really I'm wondering, it's, it's a two part question. Number one, I mean, why do you think Keir Starmer would want to commission such a report? Like, what do you think his motivation is? And then 
as for the report itself, uh, what are your thoughts about its uh, contents? Well, that's a good question, Sean. Um, as to the first one, I think that um, we need to recall the immediate context of why this report was commissioned in 2020. So um, when Keir Starmer took over the Labour Party in uh, April 2020, he, a few days within into his leadership, there was a massive 860-page Labour Party report leaked by... They apparently, I mean, we're not sure exactly who leaked it, but it was certainly written by Labour Party staffers. Um, and it was this massive, sprawling document on the issue of anti-Semitism in, in the Labour Party, alleged anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. And this report, the Ford report, in turn, is an investigation into that report and how it was leaked um, and whether the allegations in the report are true. So that's what this report is. a report about a report, which in turn was also triggered by other reports. You know, over the last seven years, there's been so many reports and investigations into so-called anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. It is getting uh, ridiculous. But uh, so as to why Keir Starmer commissioned this, I think he was really under massive pressure at the time to respond to the allegations in that leaked report. So the leaked report was by staff who were ostensibly sympathetic to Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and now uh, we can maybe get on to the, the problems with their analysis as well, because they really... Um, accepted this whole false idea of there being a unique problem of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Um, so to me, their analysis was deeply flawed. But nonetheless, that document did show some very deep evidence. This is the 860-page document leaked in April 2020. It showed some very convincing evidence that Labour Party staff sabotage Jeremy Corbyn. And these are supposed to be apolitical, so-called um, Labour Party civil servants almost. Um, they're supposed to be apolitical, you know, uh, executors of um, the Labour Party. You know, they're not supposed to take sides politically in factions, but nonetheless, the the, the, the the facts and the documentation, leaked emails and group chats in, in that 860-page leaked report showed just the, the depths of their really savage kind of uh, sabotage, outright sabotage of the Labour Party's election chances under Jeremy Corbyn. And so Keir Starmer was under immense pressure to address that because a lot of these chats showed some really disgusting text messages where they were, you know, calling for left-wing Labour activists to be burnt to death and, you know, really um, deriding left-wing Labour pro-Corbyn uh, Labour MPs in, in uh, you know, racist terms and uh, misogynistic terms. And this was really countered the whole narrative about how, you know, Jeremy Corbyn and support, Jeremy Corbyn supporters were so toxic and so forth. Actually, this document showed evidence that um, it was really the right who were the toxic element. Um, and so this is why uh, Starmer commissioned this, really. It was a way to kind of kick the issue into the long grass. And here we are now, more than two years later. So it's been successful in that regard because he's kind of been able to avoid um, addressing and so, you know, two and a half years later, here, here comes the Ford, Ford report, and it um, it does have some substantial findings. Uh, but now the problem is now for the Labour Party left and the pro-Corbynites left in the Labour Party, as few as there are now, the problem is Keir Starmer and the right of the Labour Party is really in, uh, you know, really 
deep it's really deepened its control it's in the complete it, i mean it, it's had a complete victory the labor right has now had a complete victory you know corbyn is out as a labor party mp he's no longer a labor party mp and in my view there's no way he's ever going to be allowed to come back and so you know this the full report nonetheless you know it, i mean i think it's a deeply flawed document in a lot of ways you know it tries to kind of both sides the issue of weaponizing anti-Semitism, but nonetheless, it has some some significant findings, and I think that quote you mentioned at the the top of this segment is really the key quote. I mean, there's another one um, on page seven, which is um, pretty much the same thing. It says, it says. It was, of course, also true that some opponents of Jeremy Corbyn saw the issue of anti-Semitism as a means of attacking him. Thus, rather than confront the paramount need to deal with the profoundly serious issue of anti-Semitism in the party, both factions treated it as a factional weapon. Now, I mean, to me, that is, you know, creating this false equivalence, right? How was the Labour Party left treating anti-Semitism as a factional weapon? I mean, that's to me, that's nonsense. None that because, you know, this, it was the Labour Party left that was being attacked for being anti-Semitic when in almost, almost invariably that was just completely untrue. You know, really what was being attacked were criticisms of Israel, criticisms of Zionism and even just criticisms of the Labour Party right. Um, but nonetheless, this report does find it's an official Labour Party uh, commission document. It does find definitively that the Labour Party right um, weaponized anti-Semitism. And I think that is a really significant finding. Yeah, even though this report does make that finding and does admit, you know, as we've pointed out, that there were anti-Corbyn elements in the party that did, did seize on anti-Semitism as a way to attack him, the report also kind of came to the conclusion that it was highly unlikely that a parallel campaign run by the very same anti-Corbyn staff in 2017 cost the party the election. And I don't, I don't get that conclusion that this report mm -hmm. uh, reflects when they also admit that there really was an anti-Corbyn campaign or element, as, as the report states, in the party that did attack Jeremy Corbyn uh, during the 2017 uh, campaign and after. Mm -hmm. how, how do you think and why do you think that conclusion is drawn in this report, even amidst the admission that there was an anti-Corbyn campaign that did indeed attack him using anti-Semitic, made up anti-Semitic issue. Yeah, I mean, I think it, th this whole thing smacks of, of a very typical sort of uh, Labour Party, both sides fudge. And actually, it's a, it's a very kind of British tradition, right, of these sort of uh, invet, quote unquote investigations and white papers and all these kind of uh, this kind of political theatre where they're trying to make out that you know oh well yes we're going to have a, a investigation or you know uh, a royal commission and all these kind of things it's, it's within that kind of um, tradition of really British imperialism uh, whereby they try and make themselves look like sensible apolitical uh, adults in the room while you know actually advancing a very um, definite political agenda and the politi political agenda that I detect in the Ford report is to is they're trying to the, the Ford is trying to I mean, although he does have some serious findings I think his conclusions are, are, are as you mentioned Jackie 
are really at odds with the the uh, with the evidence. You know, his his summary and conclusions are often at odds with the evidence. So he keeps evincing all this evidence of how um, the right was really attacking the left in what he calls unacceptable ways. Um, but then he says, "Oh, but the, you know, I'm sure the left reciprocated." And there's not it, the uh, the balance of evidence doesn't really support that conclusion. But what he's trying to do, in my view, is um, shore up Keir Starmer because Keir, this 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 is kind of um, advantageous to Keir Starmer because he is going to be able to say, "Well, you know, we had these problems in the past with anti-Semitism and with factionalism." You know, this is a another recurring theme in the in the Ford report where he says. Oh, you know, there's this unacceptable factionalism on both sides. And, you know, we need to move beyond that. And so Starmer's going to be able to say, you know, this is a new era and they're, they're under me and, I, and now I'm in control and we can um, kind of move past that era. So I think that's what we're going to be seeing in the months ahead. But nonetheless, I mean, I, I do think there are some really serious facts in this that um, they're not going to be able to fully sweep under the carpet. Yeah. And, you know, that being the case, Asa, because you talk about sort of the, the state that this uh, uh, leaves the, the Labor Party in and the path that Keir Starmer likely will take. But I'm wondering how you see this sort of reflected in the Labor Party's standing in uh, UK politics at this point, uh, particularly with all of the, I mean, upheaval that's been happening in the government lately uh, with uh, Boris Johnson and others uh, stepping down from office and things like that. I mean, how do you see a, a Labour Party sort of uh, maneuvering and operating in a moment like this in British politics, given that it's sort of clearly still uh, dealing with the ripple effects from its own sort of internal conflicts? Yeah, I mean, I think the problem that Keir Starmer faces is he is unable to have any kind of distinct political project. He is really a blank slate, really, for, to, in my view, for the British deep state. He really has no convincing uh, political agenda. He doesn't pronounce any positive alternative to the Tory government, whereas Jeremy Corbyn, whatever people thought of him, he put, he put forward a positive and hopeful vis vision for the future, whereas... Um, Keir Starmer's all he's relying on is basically being able to say, well, we're not as bad as the other guys. You know, it, it, this is part of the toxic British political culture of constantly chasing after the US political system, right? So the Labour Party establishment is really trying to um, ape the, the Democratic Party. You know, they're trying to do what they're trying to do what Joe Biden did, where basically they were saying, let's have a return to normality after the Trump years. Um, they're trying to do that as well. They're trying to say, well, let's go back to normality, quote unquote. But the problem they're going to face in the polls and in elections, in general elections, uh, will be, and what we've seen some early indications of this in the local elections and by-elections is, it's going to be hard for the the uh, right wing Labour Party under Keir Starmer to motivate its base, its um, its base of voters to come out to vote and to make a difference in these elections when they have no concrete political vision on alternative to the Tories to offer uh, to the Tories to offer to the general election to the working classes. You know, this is a party, the Labour Party under Keir Starmer is a party that calls itself the Labour Party, right? It's supposed to be the working class party. It's supposed to be the party of the labourers, right? The name is in the description. 
But in fact, as we've seen in recent months, it can't even take the side of the workers in the most important um, trade union dispute that there's been in many years with the rail workers, the RMT. Um, the the rail workers are uh, have been on strike in recent months to for basic um, conditions. It's not so much about pay, but it's about conditions and safety. Um, and you know, there's a you know with rising inflation and cost of living. Um, People in this country are facing real hardship. And the Labour Party under Keir Starmer has got nothing to offer them. You know, it doesn't have any kind of alternative. All it's all it's able to say is, well, you know, we're not quite as bad as them. Um, and it, it has these kind of technocratic non-solutions that it's offering to people. So I think that... Um, that what they're doing is really underestimating the Conservative Party's ability to kind of reinvent itself and, and um, uh, you know, modify its offer to the electorate, which, you know, if, if we see uh, Rishi Sunak become the next prime minister, um, you know, I, I think they will be able to say, well, we have actually changed since Boris Johnson. Um, and either way, I mean, whoever becomes the next prime minister, I think that um, the Labour Party is going to find it difficult for itself going forward. And it, it's ultimately going to face the same kind of political oblivion that we've seen in social democratic parties all over Western Europe. You know, you know, in in France, the socialists are all but dead, um, the socialists because they became neoliberal. Um, and we, we're going to see, I mean, for a long time, for years, Jeremy Corbyn supporters were saying the Labour Party, if it's not going to be a Corbynite party, is going to be PASOK, the Greek um, Social Democratic Party who faced electoral oblivion because of their embrace of neoliberalism uh, as forced by the EU. So, I mean, I think the Labour Party is now ultimately, whether it's in the short term, medium term or the long term, is facing um, oblivion, really. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, that seems to be the case. Well, we thank you so much, Asa, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, July 21st, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth, we want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary. Here in Washington, D.C., they can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave, that's M-A-V-E, dot 
digital. You can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each weekday. And we are streaming live for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now at rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, at the top of the hour today, Joe Biden has tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, the White House has announced, according to White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre, uh, Biden was experiencing, quote, very mild sy- symptoms this morning and said that the president has begun taking Paxlovid and will isolate at the White House uh, following the guidelines of the CDC. Uh, uh, Jean-Pierre says that Biden, quote, will continue to carry out all of his duties fully during that time. He has been in contact with members of the White House staff by phone this morning and will participate in his planned meetings at the White House this morning via phone and Zoom from the residence. And, you know, Jackie, looking at this, I actually thought about when uh, Donald Trump uh, contracted COVID, of course, when he was still president. And, you know, the, the thing about it, when you're the president of the United States, right, you have access to some of the best uh, health care that there is. You know, there's really, you know, there's no expense, no, no nothing that would get in the way of you receiving the absolute highest quality of health care as the president because your uh, class position allows that. Meanwhile, you know, we got over a million people dead uh, in this country from the COVID-19 pandemic. And even amidst all of this death and sickness and uh, uh, all the different ways that people have been impacted, people who get COVID and then have to deal with uh, what we're calling long COVID and things like this, the way it impacts, you know, how people are able to get to work and all these sorts of things. Just 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 profoundly impactful on uh, the whole of our society here in the richest country on Earth. Right. This uh, 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 capitalist nation, the world's only imperialist superpower. And yet for all of its uh, supposed advanced forward thinking and, you know, all of these sorts of things that the U.S., portrays to the world as it having, I mean, it was still, I mean, just waylaid by this uh, pandemic and the brunt of it, the brunt of the consequences of how this uh, capitalist country mishandled the pandemic was shifted squarely onto the backs of poor working and uh, oppressed people. Right. And so even in a crisis situation, even in the midst of a global pandemic, we don't uh, see any uh, move for the government to, you know, institute a health care for all program. Uh, you know, we don't see people getting the hazard pay that they deserve. As a matter of fact, we saw, uh, you know, a deepening of attacks on workers, you know, during the onset of, of the pandemic and things like that. We talked about that a lot here on the show as it was happening while we were still reporting from quarantine. You know what I mean? And so, you know, obviously you're the president 
of the United States and even really of any country, you know, they contract COVID. It's going to be a big deal. But in truth, when you look at what's available to a president, certainly what's available to the U.S. president and the plight and conditions of the masses of people in this country, it is just quite clearly not one in the same. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, uh, a few things about this, the, the fact that Biden has contracted COVID immediately when, you know, I read and when you just said, oh, you know, he's he's taking Pavlovics or whatever it is, as if like that's a normal course of action for everybody who caught COVID. Because I remember when I contracted COVID, uh, not when I was in Cuba, but when I came back from Cuba, um, nobody offered me any Pavlovic. No, I didn't get any kind of treatment for anything. It was like, hey, you got COVID, isolate, quarantine for 10 days. That was it. Um, so so that that's that's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, this man went to Saudi Arabia, uh, went on this tour to literally beg the Saudi government head headed by Mohammed bin Salman, a brutal, murderous, quite literal dictator. Um, the, the, the head of one of the most repressive, truly repressive regimes on the planet, the regime that is actually responsible for funding the September 11 attacks, but somehow this government has never um, held them responsible for doing that, but has waged war everywhere else in the world um, under this so-called war on terror. And here, Joe Biden, uh, as you said, point, you know, said earlier, pointed out earlier, is supposed to be the foreign policy president, goes to those people in Saudi Arabia to beg them for more oil. And <laughs> Mohammed bin Salman is like, nope, not doing it. Goes to Saudi Arabia to try to get this coalition, I guess coalition of the willing Gulf states to uh, you know, ramp up militarism on behalf of Israel in the region. And those governments are like, nope, not doing it. He went to Saudi Arabia to basically hat in hand and all he came away with was some COVID. And I think that is a, an, an apt description of U.S. foreign policy and, and the power of U.S. imperialism at this moment in the history of U.S. imperialism, Sean. Because, you know, Biden, for I think for a lot of voters, particularly voters on the progressive end of the political spectrum, he was the compromise, honestly, for a lot of people. And I'm, I'm going to give people that as much as we understood who this man was, and he was not going to be like the savior from Trump. But I don't think anybody really realized who did not know who Biden was and felt like they had to vote for him, that he really is just Trump with a, a D next to his name with more, you know, cognitive, clear cognitive issues. Um, and I think kind of like, you know, my favorite uh, uh, streaming television show, The Boys, <laughs> I think Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia, um, where he, he goes with hat in hand, uh, because the United States, as, as the leader of the, the so-called greatest country in the world, he doesn't have the power 
to make anybody do anything anymore. This least of all, not the Saudis. And he comes back with nothing but COVID. And, and I, I don't know, for me, that I think is, is an apt and very fitting, fitting description of the American empire right now. It's like all we've got for the rest of the world is bombs and threats and militarism. And all we get for all of that is just sickness and disease and, and misery that, that all of us suffer from, but all of us are not going to get any relief from because of our class situation, as you pointed out, um, Sean. I, I, I just find it, it fittingly um, representative of exactly where this country is on the global stage right now. Yeah. Um, I got to tell you, that sounds like a crazy T-shirt. You know, I took a trip to the Middle East uh, uh, for oil and to attack Iran. And all I got was this stupid COVID. And, you know, uh, uh, COVID actually threw a monkey wrench in Joe Biden's plans because he was planning to request thirty seven billion dollars in the annual budget to go towards law enforcement and crime prevention. That's right. The one of the few promises that uh, Joe Biden has kept as president is to fund the police. He has held uh, to that and reportedly will be a part of the um, uh, fiscal 2023 budget process. And he was supposed to announce this today in Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania, uh, in a trip that's supposed to be, you know, sort of centered around building on uh, the Safer Communities Act. This by uh, a partisan piece that has been uh, uh, passed. And uh, uh, last month, you know, to sign into law, it's a bipartisan gun bill. Now, uh, according to The Hill, this $37 billion request, uh, which they're calling the Safer America Plan, this would invest nearly $13 billion over five years to hire and train 100,000 additional police officers. It would also invest $3 billion to clear court backlogs and solve murders and establish $15 billion grant program uh, that is supposed to be aimed at uh, justice system reform, whatever that means. Now, officials, uh, unnamed officials that uh, were quoted here in The Hill, were saying that Biden wanted to go to Wilkes Bar. It's nearby his hometown of Scranton, Pennsylvania, uh, because, you know, he felt it was relevant in terms of community safety. They were quoted saying, you shouldn't have to be in your hometown and be living in fear of gun violence. So the president wanted to go and be able to talk about how home should mean safety. And in order to get that done, we really need Congress to do more to reduce gun violence. Now, here's the kicker, Jackie, because Biden was also in these remarks. He was supposed to bring up the fact that $10 billion in funding were taken from the coronavirus relief bill to be a part of this. So literally he was going to tout the fact, yeah, we took billions of dollars in COVID money to give to the cops and he didn't messed around and got COVID. I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty wild thing, but I, I think it is just indicative of uh, the moment that we're in. And frankly, the state of the Joe Biden presidency. And I think of the Democrat party in general, you know what I mean? And so it just feels like uh, at every level and at every turn, we can always count, you know, on Joe to invest and make these kinds of proclamations that are harmful to the masses of poor working and oppressed people in this country. 
but we don't see a whole lot uh, coming from him that's going to be to their benefit, Jackie, to say the very least. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, the irony and, and just the hypocrisy is so wild about Biden's intention to go to uh, Philadelphia to talk about F- Philadelphia, where the move bombing happened, where the cops bombed people's homes. And he's going to talk, well, he was until he got COVID. He was going to go there and talk about homes mean safety? Is what? <laughs> I, I don't I don't even know what to do with that right now. And then just the fact that, again, the hypocrisy, his administration, Mr. Biden, who campaigned on the fact that Donald Trump didn't do anything right in response to COVID and people died because of Trump's terrible COVID policies. And then Biden comes into office and doesn't do anything different or better than Trump did in response to COVID. And even more people die under Biden from COVID than did under Trump. And he then he has the nerve to take money from the COVID relief funds. So that 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 I, I guess would have ostensibly if if he or or the people or the states or whomever had paid for, you know, the 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 uh, uh, the, the treatment for COVID that he got for the rest of us. But I mean, we'll never know now because that money w- went to the cops. I, I just, I don't think this man's presidency presidency can be over fast enough for me. And I know people are not going to want to hear that, Sean, because what that means is, and we keep saying this, and I'm not seeing how it will come out any differently. What that means, the end of a Biden presidency, is the number one, he's already a lame duck president. That's pretty clear. Number two, he's not going to get reelected. He pretty indignant indignantly responded when somebody suggested accurately that, you know, Joe, people don't, you know, Democrats don't want you to run again. And his response was, yes, they do, <laughs> you know, and, and clearly <laughs> uh-huh. people don't. <laughs> right. Clearly people don't. He's going to lose if he does. And he's going to lose to a Republican. It doesn't even matter if it is not Trump. So that's what the end of a Biden presidency means. And as terrifying as that is for people, um, and it is going to get much worse for us, there has been nothing Joe Biden has done in his presidency to cushion any of us from anything that the Republicans are going to do when they take office. They're not going to have time to undo anything Biden did because he hasn't undone anything that Trump did. So they're just going to go in and pick up where he left off and make his bad extension of Trump policies even worse. But I, the, I, the Democratic Party can't get any lower than where Biden is taking them right now, Sean. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's just it's wild, like reading um, when I was uh, saying earlier about these uh, unnamed officials that were quoted in The Hill that said, you know, Congress needs to do more to reduce gun violence. Well, you know, when you say reduce gun violence, like what do you even really mean? And, and, you know, we've been talking about this within the context of the most recent mass shootings and about how, you know, in these situations, in the end, all we're really left with 
<clears throat> excuse me, in the end, oftentimes all we're really left with is, you know, some mealy mouth piece of legislation that doesn't actually hurt anything or, or, or affect anything rather, and certainly isn't going to stop the next incident of that kind. When in truth, if you want to reduce gun violence, then you have to address the social conditions that produce gun violence. But our Congress of millionaires has shown conclusively that they have absolutely no interest in doing that. And speaking uh, of sort of some last ditch efforts from uh, uh, Biden here, I mean, he's uh, recently announced some sort of incremental initiatives around climate change. Uh, uh, reportedly, I'm looking at a piece here in uh, NPR that was published yesterday. Um, he traveled to the site of uh, a former coal plant in Massachusetts to announce new funding that, according to him, will help communities cope with the extreme heat that uh, uh, is going on because of climate change. He said, quote, as president, I have the responsibility to act with urgency and resolve when our nation faces clear and present danger. And that's what climate change is about. It is literally not figuratively a clear and present danger. Well, you're right on that last part, Joe. And I would argue that you're also right that as president, you have the responsibility to act with urgency and resolve. But you haven't done that at all up until this point, and you're still not doing it here. And uh, what he announced uh, is this $2.3 billion uh, uh, to FEMA for uh, it's the Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities Initiative, which is a support supposed to support all of these uh, uh, kinds of uh, issues. And, you know, with heat being one of the biggest sort of weather related killers of Americans, according to the EPA. Now, uh, it's true that the heat is increasingly becoming a serious problem. And this is why we have to understand things through the lens of class struggle, because think about what this increased heat will mean for workers, because what what about farmers? What about agricultural workers? What about construction workers? We have all these people who will be compelled to work outside. And when it is too hot for human beings to be outside for extended periods of time, what then? Who's going to uh, uh, pay for these folks? Who is going to you know help them sustain? Are they, in fact, going to be able to continue uh, to be paid and, comp- and compensated even though they're not uh, able to work because of circumstances that are outside of that con- of uh, their control. I highly doubt it. I was reading a statistic. I don't quite remember what it was, but it was it was saying about how over the next uh, uh, several years that workers will uh, uh, have cost a certain number of billions of dollars in lost wages. Workers stand to lose billions of dollars in wages because they'll be forced to miss time off of work because of the weather. And this government just simply has not uh, uh, done anything in preparation to that. And this is what is so frustrating about the, 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 the Democrats, because they'll acknowledge that climate change is real. I mean, Joe Biden said, as I mentioned earlier, that it is a clear and present danger. It absolutely is. We are living in the climate crisis right now. And what we should be focused on is how to best mitigate the worst aspects of uh, 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 climate change in terms of how it's going to uh, drive people from their homes, what rising waters mean, and just straight up inhabitability of certain 
place because of the climate and all of that. But this is simply not happening because, you know, that that would be an affront to the machinations of the capitalist system that is driving the climate crisis to begin with. And so it's no coincidence then that uh, all roads lead back to capitalism and lead back to class struggle. And this is what we're going to have to keep our minds focused on if we're going to uh, be able and equipped to fight this system that is literally destroying the earth. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman are chopping it up today here on the live hour and uh, shout out to the by any means necessary chat free mumia says uh what about those undocumented workers doing farm work yeah that's a great point because you're talking about an already super exploited sector of the working class that stands to be impacted this even more uh, Free Mumia also says, how much did workers lose the past two years in COVID? How much did they lose in all the manufactured recession? We lose every day. I mean, I mean, they're absolutely correct. I mean, these are the raging contradictions of the capitalist system that we're seeing happen right before our eyes. And it's not impacting Joe Biden. It's not impacting Kamala Harris. It's not impacting uh, Donald Trump or Mike Pence, or, you know, any of these folks. It's not uh, impacting Jerome uh, uh, Powell, uh, the the chair of the Federal Reserve. It's impacting the masses of struggling folks here in this country, which is precisely why those same elements don't care. Now, uh, switching gears to some uh, entertainment news, um, Donnell Russell, who was the manager of R. Kelly, is facing trial over basically calling in a shooting threat to a Manhattan theater that was going to be screening <clears throat> the uh, uh, the R. Kelly Lifetime documentary. And I remember this was actually in the documentary. It actually, you know, filmed people as this was uh, happening. And according to Assistant U.S. Attorney Laura Pomerantz, uh, Russell made a, a phone call claiming that someone with the gun was going to fire on the crowd as they were watching the surviving R. Kelly series. And not only was it going to be a viewing for the documentary, there was also supposed to be a panel discussion following the film that was going to feature several of uh, Kelly's abusers and and all these sorts of things. And another, uh, a separate but related thing that happened is uh, there was an R. Kelly fan who pleaded not guilty Wednesday in a federal court in Brooklyn uh, because he was charged with making threats against prosecutors who were involved in R. Kelly's case, uh, saying, quote, if Kells goes down, everybody's going down. And the reason why I raise this, Jackie, because we, we talk a lot on the show about this culture of celebrity worship in the United States. And a consequence of that is this feeling of invincibility 
amongst uh, some celebrities, this complete lack of accountability when they do things for which they need to be held accountable. Now, this is happening within the context of R. Kelly recently being sentenced to 30 years uh, in prison for federal racketeering and sex trafficking charges. And during that case, uh, one of R. Kelly's uh, victims was quoted saying, you made me do things that broke my spirit. I literally wished I would die because of how low you made me feel. And, you know, sometimes I think we forget like just how long this has been going on, you know, you know, not even forget. I, I just think that somehow just the, the, the duration, the scope, the breadth and depth of R. Kelly's crimes and abuse, I think somehow it is just not acknowledged as consciously as it should be. So I'm looking at this timeline of uh, allegations against R. Kelly that was published by the BBC. And so in 1994, right. R. Kelly illegally marries Aaliyah, the singer, at 15 years old, right? This gets exposed. It's very public. I remember it was all over MTV and all of that. Uh, you know, the marriage is annulled. Of course, it wasn't legal to begin with. Uh, you know, R. Kelly and Aaliyah go their separate ways, and neither one of them uh, uh, speaks about it again, at least while Aaliyah is alive. Of course, she died tragically in a plane crash. 1996, Tiffany Hawkins sues R. Kelly for the, quote, personal injuries and emotional distress that she incurred during their three-year relationship. And Hawkins says that she began dealings with R. Kelly when she was 15 and he was 24, and the relationship ended when she turned 18. In 2001, he was sued by uh, an intern for inducing her, quote, into an indecent sexual relationship. There were two more court cases in April and May in 2002. Uh, uh, June 2002, I believe, is when uh, the case comes about because of the this infamous tape with this uh, underage girl that was heavily circulated online uh, with physical copies in uh, uh, the, the streets as well. So June 2002, that's 20 years ago, 1994, 28 years ago. You know what I mean? In 2002 to 2004, he was charged with 12 counts of producing child sex abuse images in Florida, which is where he had a holiday home. Charges were ultimately dropped. 2017, we get allegations of a cult. Uh, 2017 and 2018 is when we start to hear more and more from uh, the victims of R. Kelly. Later on in 2018, the Mute R. Kelly uh, campaign kicks off in earnest and he released a song around that time called I Admit where he says only God can mute me am I supposed to go to jail or lose my career because of your opinion and in 2019 uh, the Mute R. Kelly documentary leads to new charges and as I noted uh, a little earlier he's uh, you know as of June I think it was he was sentenced to 30 years so we're talking about close to 30 years of this stuff, right? Of these crimes, of this abuse. And one thing that we know about R. Kelly is that he himself is a victim of abuse as a child, right? And it is sometimes the case that a victim of abuse goes on to abuse others. Not 100% of the time, but this does happen. Now, when you take that and uh, put it with the fame, fortune, and power, that R. Kelly was able to achieve through his music, 
well, then you really have a, a recipe for disaster. You have a recipe for precisely what happened. Almost three decades worth of abuse against girls and women. You know what I mean? And it really is uh, just a heartbreaking thing on so many uh, 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 levels, Jackie. And it really is criminal, of course, what R. Kelly did. It's also criminal, the network that he built around him to protect him. You know what I mean? And so, I mean, the idea of like calling in a mass shooting threat to a theater, because that's what his manager did, Donnell Russell. That's why he's facing trial. Right. I mean, I just think it goes to show the depths of how these things go and that in terms of the victims, it's almost as if, you know, they just get like this, this like these layers of trauma from R. Kelly from all these things. And so they can't even talk about their experiences in peace without him intervening in some way. And I don't even really know where to go with that, Jackie. I don't really have a question but I do think that the entire R. Kelly situation, like Harvey Weinstein, like Bill Cosby, like so many other situations that we've seen uh, like this, I think it points to the sickness of this culture. And I would argue that that sickness stems directly from uh, the culture and gender by capitalism that reduces women and girls uh, to objects. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I actually remember the song, um, Aaliyah. Um, and I, I believe it was written and produced by R. Kelly that came out at the time of her uh, illegal or his illegal marriage to her uh, at the time. Age ain't nothing but a number. Yeah. Getting down ain't nothing but a thing. Those are literally the words of the song that came out in like 1996. And there was then so much protection of R. Kelly, especially after, you know, the song I Believe I Can Fly came out. And, and, you know, these accusations against him have always followed him, as you pointed out in this timeline, in his career. And the response of so many people, unfortunately, not all men, some women, of his fan base, of the community, of the Black community has, has been, we have to protect him because Black men are attacked in the culture. But, but then... There, therein lies this really messed up power dynamic, the celebrity worship that that does, I think, very much um, skew the way we excuse the behavior of people who are absolutely, absolutely targeted by this capitalist white supremacist system themselves. But it is that 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 layer of we can't let the system take down someone who made it because we know that the system always wants to take black men down. But when those men, some of those men are destroying the lives and the spirits and even the bodies of our children, women and girls, then that's more of an indictment on what we allow than I think it is an mm. indictment on the fact that the system absolutely does target and and tries to destroy in lots of different ways black men and black people for lots of different reasons particularly in the entertainment industry and we talk about that uh on this show quite a bit you know the way that uh entertainment is uh used against black people the very culture that we love so much in the entertainment industry um it was bastardized and turned into into this horrible thing that you know it's 
it has caused a lot of uh, really messed up messaging to be put out there. And it has been the entertainment industry that has told a lot of black artists that who are men that the only way you're going to make it in this industry, particularly music, is if you produce a certain kind of content that denigrates your people. All that is true. All that is true. Yes, absolutely true. But it's also true that R. Kelly is a sexual uh, predator, just like Bill Cosby was a sexual predator. And it doesn't matter at this point, when we know that these people are sexual predators amongst us, amongst us, what the system does to black men in general writ large, it is our responsibility to protect our children, our girls from predators in our midst. But it's really hard to do that, Sean, when you yourself are in a community full of people who are sort of, well, I shouldn't say full of people, but are in a community where people are experiencing or have experienced the same kind of trauma and haven't gotten the help that they need to deal with it the same way that R. Kelly did, right? So there's this very complex, and I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I have all the answers, conversation that we must continue to have about these issues and these people who these folks surround themselves with. I'm thinking of like Bill Cosby's attorney who was, yeah, he was doing his job defending Bill Cosby, but he was extra indignant for like, no, just come on. There's no defense of what that man did. And all of the people who continually defend that man against the proven um, uh, uh, instances of him drugging women. You know, so so I, I even as a woman, Sean, I don't have the answers other than I know that we have to confront this issue in a way that is restorative for the victims. And, yeah, sometimes even for some of the perpetrators, but they also need to be held accountable and we need to stop being so enamored with their celebrity um, and letting them get away with. <laughs> like literally doing the work of the state almost in destroying us from the inside. I, 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 I hate to sound like kind of cliched like that, but I, but I just don't know how else to look at this situation with R. Kelly and, and situations like it that, that, we, that we deal with, Sean. Yeah, you know, people kill me with that, talking about, oh, well, we got to defend uh, Bill Cosby and R. Kelly because they're talking, uh, you know, cause, because they're attacking black men. Let me tell you something, Bill Cosby is not Malcolm X. Uh, R. Kelly is not Fred Hampton. Okay, you know, just because uh, prominent black men uh, uh, get caught up in these things, that doesn't automatically mean we got to organize a defense committee from them. Like we have to have some principles and some clarity about these sorts of things. Otherwise, we leave our own people, the ones who are chiefly hurt by these things, uh, uh, out there vulnerable. But we have a caller on the line that's been waiting patiently here. Erica, tell us what's on your mind. Peace, peace. Yeah, uh, very interesting conversation beforehand. So I, I, you know, I don't know how to follow up with that. But I did want to speak about um, AOC's uh, "quote unquote" arrest. Um, I think it's just very interesting that there are no conversations around uh, what is happening uh, with the squad, uh, predominantly with you know they're just they're just 
right along. They're just towing the line with the Democratic Party. And they're supposed to be the progressive um, left of the party. But it seems like with them uh, voting for NATO, um, no conversation about the impacts of Medicaid for all and abortion, um, but pretending to be arrested at a, at, uh, at rallies. Um, you know, there's no conversation about the COVID vaccine um, or COVID-19 in general and Medicaid for all. And these were issues that were prominent on their platform uh, when there's no conversation about housing, wages or any of that. But we see AOC put on these contiguous performative acts and then the other members of the squad more or less go silent. I also know that um, Ilan Omar, she uh, recently got booed um, on Somalia Independence Day. Uh, she went uh, by, I think, hundreds of Somalis. So I think that's quite interesting that people are beginning to, I guess, recognize. But there's still no serious conversation about the role that they play, because I think for me, which makes them a little more uh, dangerous, perhaps, um, is the way that even with AOC, I know Dr. CBS um, calls them influencers, but even the way AOC has gotten away with that sort of, I'm just a bartender from the Bronx trying to help the people um, and has done nothing. You know, I think that the, that sort of branding um it was a little more, uh, it might have been as slick, if not slicker, than what we were introduced with Obama. So I just wanted to know your thoughts around the role of the squad, uh, well, the inactive role of the squad, basically. And thank you so much. I love the show. Well, thank you, Erica. We always appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, real quick, I actually found that statistic I was uh, talking about in terms of lost wages because of the climate uh, in, marking, in, in a, a piece in Market Watch. It says, quote, in a study released Tuesday, the Union of Concerned Scientists say between now and 2065, climate change is projected to quadruple U.S. outdoor workers' exposure to hazardous heat conditions, jeopardizing their health, and placing up to $55.4 billion of their earnings earnings at risk annually. So that's uh, uh, a little over $55 billion of lost wages because of the climate. Uh, swinging back to the caller, Jackie Lukeman, uh, your thoughts? Oh, AOC, Lord have mercy. I mean, <laughs> she appeared, the people were arrested at the uh, uh, abortion rights protest and several uh, legislators, representatives of the squad were uh, arrested, but but the issue for AOC was she stands there and she is like clearly kind of posing for the camera, pretending to be handcuffed. Nobody was handcuffed at the time, you know. At, at the time, eventually, folks were, you know, uh, they got the zip ties. Cause see, this is what they do in D.C. They're they're so used to these protests, and they've been doing this for a while. This is it. It really is almost. And I, I don't want to minimize the way the police can do and will turn violent on a dime uh, uh, on on protesters. We've seen that ourselves, Sean, uh, in, during the protests in Lafayette Square Park in 2020. But whenever somebody is protesting at the U.S. Capitol or at the Supreme Court, the, the police are a little bit more judicious because of where the protests are happening. So they don't want to be seen like knocking people on the head on the steps of the Supreme Court 
Although I do have to note that, you know, Graylin Hagler, Reverend Graylin Hagler, my pastor, and several other pastors absolutely did cart it off and arrested for praying on the steps of the Supreme Court and like literally going on to the steps that they tell you that, that you're not supposed to go on to protest and all that kind of stuff. But, but the problem with AOC in this particular issue is that she pretended to be handcuffed and, and she seemed to do it for the cameras. And, and all, all of this, you know, the arrest of protest, protesters at the Supreme Court and at the U.S. Capitol, with the exception of January 6th, because ain't nobody get arrested at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. You know, they, they make a big, big deal. Capitol Police uh, and all of the various forces make a big deal about having a very quick and uh, efficient almost process for dealing with uh, for and, and they don't even call it arresting people. They actually literally call it proce- processing protesters. So they'll put some zip ties on you. They'll cart you off. They'll take you off to like a table off of the main area where people are uh, uh, protesting. Uh, take your information down. Um, then they'll take the zip, tie- ties off, uh, t- zip ties off of you usually and send you about your way and you get a, you know, court summons in the mail or something like that. Or if, you know, they want to make a little bit of a bigger show of things, like I said about the the protests that uh, the faith leaders were involved in, they will, you know, cart you off to jail if you refuse to go through the little processing thing, which is what <laughs> Reverend Hagler and the other uh, faith leaders did. They were like, no, nah, no, nah, we're going to get arrested for real. This is what we're serious about this. So, so they got taken to D.C. jail. So, so that, that's the, 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 the controversy with AOC specifically in this protest, but the larger discussion about the utility of the squad and like, what are they doing in this moment where the Democratic Party is clearly just a shambles, a mess. Um, Joseph Biden is a shambles, a mess. We don't see leadership from the progressive wing of the party, a.k.a. the squad, uh, a.k.a. the progressive caucus or anyone in it at this moment where they can absolutely step in and say, see, this is why. This is why. This is why we didn't like Joe Biden. This is why we were not supportive of him. This is why, you know, we were we were challenging him uh, throughout his campaign. But we're not hearing from them because they did support Joe Biden and they did defend him and his terrible track record because they needed for people to vote for him because Nancy Pelosi, Mama Bear told them that's what they needed to do to get Joe Biden elected to get rid of Trump. So I I think that's the larger conversation. Like it it feels like, and, and I don't, you know, I don't like trying to make like superheroes out of politicians. Right. There's no one politician or even a group of politicians on on Capitol Hill um, that that can change this system from the inside. We we're clear on that. I hope we're, we're clear on that now. But but I do think it is important, Sean, to to point out that at a moment when the Democratic Party really is in like political and public relations, complete disarray. This would be the perfect time for the progressive caucus to step into that void and and snatch some control and say, "Okay, look, this is why we are the progressive caucus, 
And this is why we stand for the policies we stand for. This is why we wanted these policies um, as a part of the Democratic Party platform. And the only way the party is going to survive uh, survive this political uh, downfall, freefall, really, that it's in is if it adopts our policies. But we don't hear that from him, from them. And that is troubling right now to me, Sean. Yeah, we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch Steady C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. Zero two five two one one three two zero. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here as we keep the movement moving. And uh, in thinking about our caller uh, who asked about, you know, the squad and this, um, you know, this whole spectacle about them getting, you know, quote unquote arrested or as Jackie pointed out, I guess, you know, processed. Um, you know, which is something that we see people do. You know, we'll see politicians do it sometimes. Certain activist groups will do it. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe you know, the uh, strategy tactics, maybe that's quite another conversation. But I think it shows a couple of things. I think on the one hand, it shows the limits of what it means to be a progressive within a neoliberal capitalist government in the United States, a progressive uh, minority. And really, as I often say, when we talk about the progressives in the U.S., these are these are the true liberals, right? These are the true liberals who are a minority within their party and who are seemingly cut off at the knees any time they really want to put forth anything that seems even remotely decent or beneficial to the masses of uh, uh, struggling people. And I don't I mean, my impression is that they're basically like bludgeoned and browbeat into uh, uh, ineffectiveness, because any time that they try to jump bad or try to buck the authority of the establishment of the party, well, you know, they get taken behind the woodshed. I mean, I would argue that the Democratic establishment is far harder on uh, the progressive elements in the Dem- in, in their own party than they even are against the Republicans who were taught are like their, you know, mortal enemies or whatever. You know, and on the other hand, happening at the very same time is just this uh, this political theater that seems to be the only thing that uh, is being offered to us, the public, as we are in a time of crisis in this country. Not only are we in a time of crisis, we're in a moment where crises, a number of them stand to get a lot worse. And so instead of getting living wages, truly affordable housing, uh, you know, all these necessities of life that people need, and instead of critical solutions to climate change, instead of codifying abortion rights and all these things, you and I get, you know, a cute little video, a cute little image that was made to be 
retweeted and posted on Instagram and and all of that. And it's just so very completely painfully empty and devoid of any real substance. So what does this mean for you and me? Right. Those of us who understand that ultimately when we talk about liberation and we talk about a critical uh, addressing of these issues that impact our lives, that we can't, you know, vote our way there, that electoralism is not really uh, uh, the solution. And then we see that our uh, leaders, even those who, you know, may hold uh, somewhat similar politics to us, or at least proclaim to have somewhat similar concerns. And then we see what they do in terms of being, you know, caught up in the, uh, uh, the spectacle and all of that and the political theater. It's just, to me, it leaves a very sort of empty feeling because it's sort of a reminder that these people have no intention of really doing anything for us. You know, they'll gesture towards doing something, just like how I was mentioning Biden and his, uh, his, uh, you know, little uh, piecemeal climate thing that, that he's talking about doing, which, as always, completely misses the, the deeper systemic root of this, which I don't think is accidental, right? So they'll gesture towards doing these things, but they won't actually do things uh, that would really benefit so many people who are struggling right now. And I think it's important to know the limits of that, Jackie. And I tend to feel like more and more people are becoming aware of those limits because, you know, we're socialized and taught and really indoctrinated to think that, you know, we should put all of our hopes into these people, into these individuals, into these bodies. Uh, uh, and by bodies, I mean governing bodies uh, like, you know, like Congress and so on, the White House and things like this. Right. And we talk about what comprises this government. We're taught to put all our, of our faith in that because that's what's going to address our troubles. That is going to really acknowledge the conditions that we're in and not only acknowledge them, but fix them. And oftentimes all we get is a big fat nothing. And uh, so it all seems sort of part and parcel of the broader crisis that this society is in precisely because of the contradictions of uh, uh, the capitalist system. And while I, I mean, personally, I, I don't really think that the whole, you know, th- that this whole thing that we're talking about with the squad and them, you know, being arrested with the little bandanas or whatever. I, I mean, I don't think it's that big a deal. I mean, it's whatever. I mean, you know, the, the Democrats acting like Democrats to me, not that much more different than, you know, when they were kneeling with Kente cloths, stoles on after George Floyd and the CBC song Lift Every Voice and Sing horribly. You know what I mean? It's just uh, another ritual, another thing to, to look good for the cameras. Meanwhile, uh, people see their uh, deteriorations crumbling. But I'm still optimistic and I'm still hopeful because even when I see this mess from the Democrats, from the Republicans, from the ruling class, I take solace in the fact that there is an element and an effort and a struggle and a movement that is beginning to be organized outside of them. That is the real solution. And if it wasn't for that, (laughs) man, I'd be feeling pretty bad. But how could I when I see all the organizing that people are doing all across these countries? When I see the organizing at uh, Starbucks and Dollar General, ongoing protests against racist police terror, ongoing 
mobilizations and struggles around abortion rights, the climate, as we've been talking about a lot today, all of those things, the people are addressing this, right? So for me, that's where my hope is, Jackie, and that's where, you know, uh, my mind likes to go when I see this nonsense that the electeds like to get into. But in truth, I think we all as movement people have to start asking ourselves about what comes after this system, what comes after the masses of people takes power. Because we know that it cannot be this current capitalist system that uh, we're living in in this moment, as that is quite literally the primordial soup out of which all of our concerns emerge. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And that is, you know, that's where that revolutionary optimism comes in, because you know, while, while I know as an organizer, a lot of people are still very committed to electoral politics and the Democratic Party in particular, I think the veil is being lifted from the party in, in this moment, in this in this moment of such, you know, political disarray and morass. And honestly, I think fear for a lot of people. So I do believe that even with kind of the performative uh, shenanigans of uh, the, the, the typical politicians, the usual suspects, uh, as we say, I think it's wearing thin on people and people, more people, people outside of us, movement people, regular folks who have um, hung all their hopes on the Democratic Party and have, uh, and I think are experiencing a great deal of disappointment and a concern about what they're going to get from doing that uh, from the Democratic Party now and in the future, they are ripe for the picking. And I think they are ripe for some good political education, Sean. They are ripe for uh, some organizing, getting into organization to answer the question that you asked, what are we going to do when this system is done outside of the system. And I think people are ready for that. More people are ready for that. So that is also where I am hopeful in this moment of just political, I, I can't even call it uh, um, a disappointment for me because, I mean, we all know this is the natural end of, of the very system that we keep talking about is rotting from the inside, right? So so we are, this is that moment and, and we would be foolish if we did not seize it and take that disappointment we see in some of those people and show them that there is hope in this struggle and they need to join it. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you know, it just makes me think that we can never lose sight of the importance of just some of that very basic hard work about what it means when we say organizing this, this, this base building and expanding you know, all of these efforts that we're uh, uh, engaged in, that there's no substitute for getting out there and talking to people and knocking on doors and petitioning and, and tabling and doing real investigation and interrogation of where we are and what the uh, uh, terrain is like mentally of the people there, what it's like politically and what are the different uh, 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 elements that are there, the relationship of forces, as we like to call them. There's just so many basic things that we can't lose sight of if we're serious about building this thing that needs to be built. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. 
by any means necessary.